episode of spill the murder today we're going to be covering the head in the basket chapter 7 of volume 3 of true crime case histories we're almost done because in here um they have in volume 3 they have 12 cases and we're almost like literally done we have a few more cases left so Without further ado, let's begin. In April 2001, a young woman named Melanie Oville walked into the Vancouver, Canada Police Department and told police she needed to walk, well, needed to talk to someone about a murder. She had a story that was a bit hard to believe. Police didn't know what to make of it. Melanie was divorced and living with her mother at the time. Right away, she admitted to police that she was bipolar and had been hanging around local drug dealers. For police, it didn't add a lot of credibility of the story. The detectives handling the case knew that people that suffer from bipolar disorder can sometimes have lapses in perception of what she claimed to them might not be the actual truth. Despite their assumptions, Melanie... Melanie gave a very detailed and persuasive story. Melanie explained that three weeks ago, her best friend, Lee Ann Price, had shown up at her door crying hysterically. Lee Ann told her that she's been driving around Vancouver with her boyfriend, Mally, no, Mike, Mikey Illis, when, while he was driving, Illis kept kept reaching for something in the rear of his van. He was searching for white Home Depot bucket that was just behind his seat. Just, no, out of curiosity, Leanne looked inside the bucket to see what was in it. That he was so that she was so curious that she was so interested in what she in what she saw in the bucket shocked her inside the bucket was a human head my apologies for my pausing it's just that I keep on yawning so yeah. and my eyes just got teary eyed. Not because I'm just tired. Also because I practically just woke up at six forty. So yeah. Anyway. Six forty here, not six forty in New York. Six forty in Texas, so Melanie explained that Lee Ann showed up at her house again the following day. This time, she brought her boyfriend, Mikey Illis, with her. She had previously met Illis and his associate, Derek Medinsky, in 
Pavian Dowling at a bar that they all frequented. Mikey Illis was a known was well known throughout Vancouver as a drug dealer. He was an Hungarian national. And had and that had been deported from Canada several times for drug and weapons charges, but kept managing to get back into the country illegally. He ran an elaborate operation that involved taking marijuana grown in British Columbia over the border into the United States. One pound of highly potent BC bud that sells $1,500 in Canada sold more than $6,000 in Los Angeles. The DEA eliminated, uh, not, not eliminated, but estimated that at the time, the trafficking in Canada and the Canadian marijuana into the United States was a billion dollar industry. Yeah, my eye is bothering me. Sorry, guys. My eyes are freaking bothering me. I think I just rubbed it the wrong way and it's now getting... It's my right eye that's bothering me. I think I did rub it the wrong way. Oh, but, like, not just burns, but, like, it hurts because, like, I literally was dropping a teardrop on my face. I couldn't, it was just terrible. Like, I hate it when that happens when, like, you rub your eye the wrong way and, like, it starts getting, like, fucking teary-eyed and it just fucking sucks. Because you can't fucking read shit. So. So, um. But rather than selling the weed for cash, they were exchanging it for crack cocaine, which would often smuggle back into Canada. The amp- this amplified their earnings even more. It was believed that Illis and his friends Derek Medinsky, Gary Favell, and Haven Dowling were making more than $80,000 per deal, which is a lot of cash so i wonder where they were keeping it has any of you like watched the show um power before that is what it reminds me like keeping dope which that's what they call it dope and other things like that hidden and then like having like stacks of cash somewhere when Leanne showed up at her door with Illis in tow, Melanie was terrified. She was even more terrified when Mikey insisted that the three of them go for a drive. Mikey was known as a violent man, and Melanie was worried that he might hurt her if she didn't go with them. Melanie rode with them to a garage. Once inside, she recognized another of Illis's associates, Derek Medinsky. Medinsky was cleaning inside of a van. Illis suddenly became agitated and pulled Melanie aside. In an attempt to int- intimidate her, he told her that if she wanted if he told her that if he wanted to show her what happens to people that betray him, 
He then opened the Home Depot bucket and pulled out a human head. Melanie immediately recognized the face. It was the head of a 27-year-old Haven Dowling, another drug dealer in Illis' team. Illis Illis told Melanie that Dowling was addicted to crack and had been slimming from their pocket. Dowling had blown a deal with one of their most important clients, and he needed to prove to the client that he can take care of the situation. Illis also didn't approve of him being a homosexual and didn't like that he spent his money so extravagantly. Dowling had been living in an upscale up, um, uprise suite in downtown Vancouver's wall cent- center. Melanie continued her story and told detectives that Illis wanted to store the head in her garage and she didn't she didn't want to, but she was scared of Illis and felt like she didn't have a choice. That night, Illis moved the bucket from the se- from the severed head into her garage. Melanie wasn't sure why he wanted the head to be stored in her garage, but she assumed it would make um but she assumed it was to make her believe that she was an accessory to the crime. The next day, Illis and Leanne showed up again to Melanie's house without a, without a word. They moved, they removed the bucket with the head from her garage and left. Melanie then spent the next three weeks contemplating if she should call the police. Again, it's like my eye. Again, it's my left eye now that's bothering me. Police thought Melanie's story was difficult to believe, but decided to do a little research and try to verify it. The first step was to search police databases for the names of Mikey Illis and Derek Medinsky and Haven Dowling. A quick search through police computers confirmed that, confirmed that Mikey Ellis was a well-known criminal, and they found his prior arrest, deportation, and known drug dealing associates, one of them whom was Derek Medinsky. Haven Dowling, the man of Melanie claimed, was in the head not in the head was the head in the bucket had police had a police record as well in addition to several drug related arrests Haven Dowling had been reported missing by family members right around the time that Melanie claimed missing by um claimed to have his head or to have seen his head in the bucket detectives were starting to realize that the story Melanie had told them could actually be true Luckily for detectives, it wasn't hard to track down Mikey Ellis, and he was already in police custody waiting to be deported back to Hungary. Once again, like, he was ready to get deported back to Hungary once again. 
before speaking to Ellis, they wanted to speak to Derek Medinsky first. Medinsky was also known to police and had a fair share of drug-related arrests. When police approached him for questioning, he said nothing. He acknowledged he was friends with Mikey Ellis, but said, but has said nothing of killing or a head in a bucket. Detectives then looked into Melanie's story of the van, and she had told police that she had had seen Medinsky cleaning inside the van. Records, vehicle records show that Medinsky had recently sold the van and police recovered it from a used car sales lot. A thorough forensic analysis was performed inside of the van in addition to photographs and fingerprint analysis. Police used a Hilma stick to search for the presence of blood. A Hilma stick is a small stick that is coated with blood sensitive chemical. It will indicate the presence of blood when touched to a surface and then sprayed with distilled with distilled water. The analysis of the van came back positive for presence of blood, but police now needed to find out if the blood was from Haven Dowling. All three of the drug dealers were also avid bodybuilders. When searching Haven Dowling's home, they found a weight-lifting glove. Inside the glove, the police were able to, to analyze skin cells that matched the DNA of the blood found in the car, or found in the van. This was now the question. This was now no question in, in the detective's mind that Melanie's story was credible. They had proof that Dowling had blood in the van but they didn't have the definitive proof that he was dead. Detectives knew that Derek Medinsky was involved in the crime. Also, they got a warrant to wiretap his cell phone. After listening to his phone calls, they realized that Medinsky was helping Ellis run a drug operation from prison. In addition to the wiretap, undercover police tried to infiltrate the drug ring, but nobody was saying anything about Haven Dowling ahead in a bucket or a murderer of any kind. Unable to get evidence they needed, police asked for the help of Melanie Oval. Police also wiretapped the phone of Ellis' girlfriend, Leanne Price. Reluctantly, Melanie agreed to call Leanne and try to get her to talk about the murder. Melanie called Leanne's tapped phone and expressed her concern with seeing the head in the bucket. She told Leanne that she was riddled with guilt and was considered going to police with the information. Without admitting any over the phone, Leanne tried to s- settle her down and told her that she would call her back. Immediately after hanging up with Melanie, Leanne called Mikey Ellis at the prison. When Leanne called the prison, police thought that she would talk to Ellis about the murder, but detectives were shocked to hear her say nothing about her conversation with Melanie or the murder. Instead, 
She told Ellis that two of them, that the two of them needed to go, needed to get married. Ellis was confused by her saying this, but she assumed, she assured him that she would explain it to him later. Please realize that Leanne knew exactly what she was doing. She knew that if they were married, she wouldn't be compelled to testify against her husband. Two days later, Leanne and Mikey Ellis were married in the prison chapel. Ellis was was soon due to be deported from Canada. Police needed to come up with some evidence that a murder had happened before he was deported, or they may lose their chances. Melanie was also worried about his release. She knew that Ellis still ran his business from prison and he could easily have killed her. She also knew that he had been deported in the past, but that had not stopped him like that had not stopped him from coming back into the country. With only ten days left before Ellis was due to be deported from Canada, police decided to charge him with first degree murder despite not having a body. The charge, however, gave them some leverage to put on Derek Medinsky. They gave Medinsky a choice. He needed to participate in the prosecution of his friend Ellis or he would have been charged as an accomplice in the murder of Hoven Dowling. Medinsky was a career criminal and was surprisingly unfazed after more than 10 hours of questioning. Detectives then offered him a complete immunity if he, test- if he testified against Ellis. He accepted an offer and agreed to tell the whole story of what happened to Haven Dowling. Medinsky told police that he, Ellis, and Dowling were planning on going to the movies together. Ellis was in the back seat of the van while Medinsky drove and Dowling was in the passenger seat. As we're driving through West Vancouver, Ellis asked Dowling to reach over the dashboard and turn off the interior light of the van. And as Dowling leaned over the middle of the van, Ellis pulled out his revolver and shot Dowling four times in the back of the head. After the shots, Ellis mumbled, quote, There's not enough room for, for fags in this world, end quote. Ellis then lowered the passenger seat all the way back so the body wouldn't be seen from the street and then drove back in their garage and parked the van inside. Once inside the garage, they removed the body and Ellis instructed Medinsky to get to work cleaning inside the van. Medinsky claimed that Ellis then took Dowling's body into another room and severed his head. Ellis told Medinsky that because of Dowling's drug addiction, he he shorted a particularly important client, and that client was threatening Ellis and telling him that they would seek retribution if he didn't take care of the guy that shorted them. Ellis took that to mean that they would kill him. He told Medinsky that if severed head, he severed the head so he could show the client they had taken care of the problem. The problem employee. Medinsky told police that he didn't see the body or head of Dowling until a week later, when Ellis asked for his help for disposing of the body. Ellis had a plan to bury the body in the woods and cover it with lime. Ellis was li- was under the assumption that lime helps the body decompose more rapidly. 
Kaminsky Ilith then drove 40 mi miles north to a remote wooded area near um, um, it's not squeamish, it's skewmish, skewmish, BC, to bury the body. The judge in Vancouver had told detectives that they had one day to present evidence that Ellis murdered Dowling, and if they couldn't come up with a body, they would have to deport him back to Hungary. Police then had Medinsky take them to the place that they, that they buried the body. In a shallow grave, they found the head of Hovind Dowling. The head was still preserved. Ellis had just um, had been wake, had been watching too many mo lobster movies, and had mistakenly covered the head with lime rather than Lyle. Lyle, Lyle would have speed up the decomposition, but lime actually acts as a preservative. And just as Mazinski had told them, Hoffman Dowling had four bullet wounds in the back of the head. During the t the trial, Mazinski testified against Lyle. Um, Illis, and Illis claimed that Medinsky was the one that killed Dowling. In March 2003, a British Columbia Supreme, Co um, Supreme Court jury found Mikey Illis guilty of the first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the po with the chance of parole for 25 years. Seven years later, the defense claimed that the judge had made a mistake when instructing the jury that Ellis' rights had been violated. The defense also argued that certain evidence had not been disclosed by the prosecution. As a result, Ellis had his verdict overturned and was awarded a second trial. During the second trial, the defense argued that the letters that were written to Leanne and other friends of Mike Mikey Illis were not present, presented as evidence. They claimed that the letters were an expression of his innocence. The letters were filled with elaborate conspiracy theories in which he blamed both Derek Medinsky and Melanie Oville for the murders. He claimed Melanie's description of events was motivated by jealousy and because she felt that Leanne was spending a lot of her time with him. He also spoke of his suspicions that Hoffman Dowling was still alive and in hiding. Another letter claimed that he believed that the blood found in the van was from Hoffman and his boyfriend in, a f in a f this fight. And he got a bloody nose. Yeah, another... Yet another letter claimed that there was no murder at all and the police were fabricating evidence and playing quote-unquote KGB mind tricks. Yet using another yet, um, yet using yet another letter, the prosecution was able to prove that the prior letters were all written as a ruse specific, specifically for the t intention of the police intercepting them. The letter that the prosecution presented read, quote, there is, there is our defense. The white letters say it all. Who killed, whom, why, 
it would be like an ace in our pocket and this would would this could decide the case make it or break it end quote after this the second trial Ellis was again found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years. Coincidentally, just three months after Hobbin Dowling's death, Derek Medinsky was involved in another drug-related murder in California. Medinsky and his associate Gary Favell traveled to Los Angeles for another of their marijuana for crack cocaine deals. This time, they brought a new guy, Joe Brolic with them. Brolic was not a career criminal with Faville and Medinsky, but was headed in that direction. He heard he could make some quick cash by handling the transaction, and they arranged for him to meet with the Los Angeles buyers. The three men traveled to Los Angeles together, but Medinsky and Faville were the only ones to return to Canada. On July 5, 2002, Joe Berlick's body was discovered in the middle of the day behind the discount tire store in Fullerton, California. He had been shot and his body was wrapped in plastic lying between two parked, two parked cars. Joe Berlick's body has never been found. And that the end of chapter 7 the head in the bucket it's just crazy that like Illis like not just thought he can get away, for, away with it but also the fact that he called Dowling a faggot like just because the person's bisexual doesn't mean you have to make fun of their sexuality. Like, I think to my ability that when I was in middle school, like literally when I was in middle school, one of the guidance counselors next door to my actual guidance counselor talked to me and called me into her office and she said, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I said, okay, and then I shook her hand, and then they sat down. I was like, so, basically, what happened? Why, like, basically, why am I here? This, this, and that. I was trying to get to the bottom. Why the fuck I was in her office? Because she wasn't my main guidance counselor. So, I was not scared. I was just kind of, like, curious. And then she said, well, I heard you were making fun of people's sexuality. I was like, okay. Like, you're putting that, I'm not making fun of anyone's sexuality. I just thought it was just weird to a certain extent that some people were, their sexualities were different than what I assumed them to be. And then she, I didn't say it like that. I said, like, oh, like, who said that? Was it so-and-so? Was it this? Was it that? And they're like, oh, um, what they told me is very confident and made a safe space. So, if today it's just you and me, kind of like she's being a fucking therapist. What are you, my fucking therapist? And then um, she goes like, but, but before you told me that people were complaining that I, like, 
my friends group at the time and I put air quotes around that because they weren't really my friends they were just backstabbers so um before she told me about the complaint she asked me so I'm just curious what is your sexuality and I just was thinking because I knew a little bit about the LGBTQ plus community well it was LGBTQ back um in 2015 2014, 2013, that was, like, basically the time that, like, it was, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, um, there was, like, no plus at the time, and I already knew very little about it about the LGBTQ community because we had like a seminar about it in our classroom like someone came in and talked about the LGBTQ community and stuff so I knew a little bit like L is for lesbian B is for bisexual T for trans Q for queer oh and gay G for gay sorry so L G B T Q. So lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer. And um they explained what bisexual was and I was like, oh, this is like not just interesting, but like maybe I could be that. I could be bisexual. Because like I do like girls, I do like like hanging out with them, talking to them, conversating with them and like and they don't make me uncomfortable. And sometimes boys, I do talk to boys sometimes, but not a lot. Like, if it's, like, a group things, like, group projects, I'm okay with. So, yeah. Um, when she asked me my sexuality, I'm like, I didn't ask her, like, that like what's the importance of you telling me like you asking me what the hell my sexuality is and what does that have to do with the situation and like whatever the situation is and then she was she then like um well kind of gave me that like well eye look and then um what happened was that like What was I going to say? She literally was waiting on my answer and I was thinking real hard because like, honestly, when you're in middle school, you don't know what your sexuality is just yet. You're trying to discover yourself. You're trying to get out of middle school so you can go to high school. So literally, I, the first thing that came to my head was straight or bisexual so I said either which one yeah straight or bisexual so I said to her out of nervousness because I don't know her very well I said to her bisexual she was like oh okay I was like and then like when she said okay I said why do you ask she was like because well 
some girls and this is when it said guys because I didn't make fun of their sexuality sexual sexuality because I knew that they weren't that they weren't gay. Like I assumed that they weren't gay. And um when um what was it? When they basically said that I was like, okay, these girls are so rude. Like they can't even woman up to the fact that like they're like, Oh, I told our guidance counselor about you like making fun of my sexuality. They didn't even they at the time they didn't even woman up and say admit to their wrongs saying like, Oh, I told on you I was like, Okay. Like if it's something like that's hurting my feelings about someone else. I would definitely tell on them because I need them to stop. I wasn't doing I wasn't doing anything like that like constantly. I only did it like one time and then they thought like like it was wrong. I wasn't making fun of them. I was making I was asking you like you serious? Like like you're this, this and that? That's that's I said like all I said was like that was weird. And they all got offended. I said, of course they're gonna get offended because like again Gen Z and Alpha are like the generation of in, like not insensitive but sensitive people so whatever you say on social media or out loud you're immediately like cancelled like cancelled done fucking for so kind of pissed off when I left the guidance counselor's office because one, she didn't need to fucking know about my sexuality two like these girls are fucking idiots because I knew who the, the fuck these fuckers and who the fuck they were it was like this girl Andrea and like this other girl Jada and they all went to the guidance counselor and opened their fucking mouths like what the fuck like, middle school is supposed to make you mature. And, like, I'm not making fun. All I just said was just fucking weird. Like, not like it's trippy. Like, it's just weird. Flat out weird, you know? And they're like... Idiots. But also, on the other hand, like... Melanie could have, like helped her case because she was in like in a relationship that's like kind of like abusive like he kind of like brainwashed Melanie to commit a crime I think and Melanie like was like was really accomplished married him and I don't even know If these two people are together, married, separated, doesn't really tell you. It just says like he's in jail, wouldn't with no possibility of parole, and like for twenty for twenty five years. So yeah. But next, the next um 
episode is going to be about the Arizona Torso Murder 1 and 2. Because in chapter 8, it's about the Arizona Torso Killer number 1. And then we have chapter 9, the same story. But it's a different person. I believe it's a different person that committed the crime as well. So yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as I did. Well, kind of. I'm not saying, like, I enjoyed murder, but I'm saying, like, in general, like, I just like reading it and being... And yawning. So damn much. But, yeah, thank you guys for listening as always, and speak to you guys in the next one. Again, this is going to be Chapter 8 and Chapter 9. Arizona Torso Killer, well, no, Murderer, number one and number two, from chapter eight and chapter nine, so, again, hope you guys enjoyed this, and have a great and lovely day, bye!